Well, good evening. Good to see you. Great to be here. Good to be back. It has been uh, quite a year, hasn't it, since the last time we all met up. Uh, I think we were, we were at the beginning of the whole thing, I think, the last time we were together, and, and hopefully we're at the end of the whole thing the next time we're all together. I think that's what I said when I was here. Hopefully next time I see you, we're at the end. So um, we, uh, I am so glad to have Natasha with me. Um, she got to be on this trip. Um, doesn't get to be on every trip, but I'm so excited, so I got to step it up a notch and do a little bit better job tonight than usual. So um, I, I want to thank Jamie and Lisa. I love you guys. I appreciate who you are and what you represent. I, I appreciate your church and, and uh, what you're doing, in, not just in your community, but, but what you're representing to the body of Christ, and, and you are representing it to the body. Sometimes I don't think we realize what we what we're putting out and how many people are watching and looking and, and questioning. And so this is a place I'm proud of and I'm proud to know. And uh, I just thank God for what you're doing. I'm very excited about tonight and tomorrow night and Sunday morning because I love the opportunity to talk about Jesus. I love the opportunity to study the word. I'm also excited to be in a, a sort of a teaching house. I know that Grace Life is a place that teaches the word when you're in a place where people are used to being taught, they listen differently. Uh, and so I'm always excited about coming to a teaching house because I'm a teacher at heart. And, uh, and so just to share some things from the Word and to see what the Father's going to say to us is a, is a pretty exciting thing for me. I, I want to minister tonight. And, and honestly, and I don't know who's been followed our ministry, kind of knows what we do or whatever. And just the quick Cliff Notes version is... Um, I love to take scripture and examine it up against other scripture. I love to put the spotlight on Jesus in the middle of that scripture. But, but honestly, I don't like to tell you what to believe. Um, I think that one of the failures we have in the church is one of the same failures we're making fun of in the school system. Uh, maybe we make fun of it because we spot that they're using our trick. And that is, so many times I feel like we're telling people what to believe rather than teaching them how to learn. And you're better off in school if you get a professor that doesn't tell you what to think, but tells you how to think. Because if you get a professor that tells you what to think, you don't learn anything but what they believe. But if you get a professor that tells you how to learn, then you might disagree with Mr. or Mrs. So-and-so, but you'll be a better learner. The reason I say we've been doing that in the church is I think the church for a long time has, has indoctrinated people, but hasn't taught people how to ferret out doctrine. And so we come in and we sit down and we go, hey, here's what you need to believe and here's why. I'll give you scripture A, B, and C to prove to you why you should believe that. Now, how many of you realize if you leave that church and go down the road to the next church and walk in and say, hey, here's what they taught, they're going to say, no, here's what you ought to believe and here's scripture D, E, and F. And then if you leave that church, we could do this all night. So you could go down the road. So everywhere you go, it's going to be doctrine, doctrine, doctrine. Don't you believe it? And then you either have to say amen or Get up and leave. Go find somewhere else. I think a far better way is to learn how to learn. To open our eyes to the person of Jesus and then look for him when we read the scripture. Where we don't find him, move on. We don't have to stay there forever wrestling that over, wrestling that over. Look for Jesus. Where you find him, stay there. Enjoy that journey. See what seeing him does to you? How does it impact you? How does it make you think differently? How does seeing Jesus make you see that verse differently? 
How does seeing Jesus make you treat your neighbor differently? If you don't see Jesus in it and you see something else, put it on the back burner. Wrestle with that another time. Let the hermeneutic lens be Jesus. And I think in a, from a Christian standpoint, that might be the way to learn how to read the Bible. And then when you bring things up, because what I want to do tonight, tomorrow, Sunday, is I'm going to bring some things up to you. I'm going to lay it out there on the table. I don't expect you to grab it. Maybe you grab it. Maybe it agrees with your spirit. Maybe it answers a question you've been wrestling with. Or maybe it's, whoa, I don't know. I've never thought about that. You know, I don't know if I want to go down that road. I'm going to leave that on the table. Great. I'm not telling you what to believe. I'm giving you the opportunity to, change, to just expand your taste buds a little bit and try that dish you haven't tried before while trying to focus it back on Jesus. So if you're ready for that journey... Let's go to Luke chapter 24, and I want to minister tonight on the third day necessity. That's what I would title this, uh, because the image, in fact, you guys did a song tonight that mentioned the third day, um, and third day imagery for Christianity is resurrection imagery. Three days after Jesus dies, he raises from the dead, and so third day imagery is part of our vernacular. It's part of what we do, but why is it part of our vernacular? You might say, well... You just answered your own question. Third day vernacular is because Jesus raised on the third day. But have you ever thought, why did he raise on the third day? Why didn't he raise on the second day? Why didn't he raise on the fourth day? Now, we've come up with all kinds of answers like, well, they believe the spirit would have left his body after a certain time, or he's trying to repeat the Jonah narrative, three days and three nights in the belly of the well. And all those are, are worthwhile. Hey, once again, put them all out there on the table and see what sticks. But I want to show you something else tonight that I think if we'll kick it around a little bit, we might see that there was a deeper image going on when we get into the resurrected reality. And when I talk third day, I'm not just talking historical, like we need to prove Jesus was three days in a grave, but rather what would that have meant to the audience of Jesus' day? And to do that, we got to think a little bit like national Israel in the days of Jesus. And to do that, we have to read the scriptures a little bit like national Israel in the days of Jesus. And if we can get into that mindset, we might see, and this is something that fascinates me, we might see that some of the things we see in theology, and we go, hey, I believe that, amen. When you filter it through the lens of, a, of an Israelite who's reading only the Torah, they might not see it exactly the way that you're amening it. And how many of you realize two-thirds of the Bible was their book? And so when they get to Jesus, it's easy for us to look at, at natural Jesus in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and say, boy, I would love to see him. How are these idiots not following him? I've read the Bible that way for a long time. You'll, you'll look at the Pharisees and go, what's wrong with these guys? How do they not follow Jesus? Can't they see? But as you start to go through the lens of what they were looking for versus what they had in Jesus, then we might start to realize that they may not have been looking for the same things we're looking for, and if we could get back in that mindset, we might get an understanding of the things in what the Word says. So Luke chapter 24, verse 44, he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled. So Jesus believed that what he was going to do was fulfill all things written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, concerning me. Notice that Jesus doesn't even bother with the stuff that doesn't concern him. 
Jesus doesn't give a theology 101 course or a master's thesis on uh, psalms and proverbs and major prophets and minor prophets. He certainly doesn't try to give the historical authenticity of the Genesis account of creation. He doesn't try to spot dinosaurs in the flood story. He isn't concerning himself with the projectile speed of David's rock when he fights Goliath. None of the stuff that we might want to sit down and get Jesus to dig into for him, he comes to do one thing, to show you guys where I have fulfilled the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms concerning me. For, as far, for my money, that's my hermeneutic in the Bible. Because I want to take it straight from the lips of Jesus. If I'm going to go looking in this word for something, I'm going to go looking for Jesus because at least I have biblical proof that that's how Jesus taught the word. And so then I can go look in that word and say, what might Jesus have said? So look at 45. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. I love verse 45 because I think this is the revelation I'm praying over people. It's like, tonight, Father, at Grace Life Church, open their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. Even all of us who believe we have our understanding opened. Open my understanding so that I may comprehend the scriptures so that I can take something in that you have to say to me. All right, I want to read 46 on through about 49. Then we're going to come back and do some work. Luke 24, 46. And he said to them, thus it is written and thus it was necessary. I want you to note the word necessary for the Christ to suffer and arise from the dead in the third day. And that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you're endued with power from on high. Now, a lot of times, my Pentecostal charismatic upbringing, all we worked on in Luke 24 was the 49th verse where Jesus said, go tarry in Jerusalem, wait for the promise of the Father, because we went, that's Pentecost, that's where you get the power of the Holy Ghost, and thank God for it, but I, I never heard anybody talk about the necessity, the necessity, this, this was the word that was used, it was necessary that he suffer, give me 46 again, necessary that he suffer and that he die and that he raised from the dead on the third day. Why was it necessary that he suffer and he die and he raised from the dead on the third day? Now the easy answer, and I don't mean to insult our answers, but I, I've, I've been given this answer my entire life, so the only person I can call easy is me. The easy answer is, I can tell you why it's necessary for Jesus to suffer and die, because we're all sinners bound for hell. And if somebody doesn't die for me, I'm going to have to die for me. And we go, well, that's the easy answer. So Jesus had to suffer and die so that I don't have to suffer and die. But I've got a feeling that Jesus' Jewish audience wasn't thinking, boy, I hope somebody comes along someday to suffer and die for my individual sins so I don't spend eternity away from God. I don't believe that was the Jewish mindset. I don't believe that was national Israel's mindset. I don't even think it was Peter, James, and John's mindset. And I don't believe that it was what Jesus walked into Israel to present to them was, hey, all of you guys need to individually accept me as the Lord of your life. Because even though you're the people of God, that's not going to do you any good. I need to suffer and die on behalf of your individual sins. We don't see that theology begin to develop out until we get deeper into the New Testament. And we're going to get to that theology because that's the projection that we're on in this gospel message. But in Jesus' day, 
He thought one of the last things he needed to do before he ascends to his father is, hey, guys, I need you to know it was necessary for me to go die. This wasn't an accident. I didn't lose. This, this, this wasn't a curveball. This didn't catch the father or me off guard. It was ne necessary that I die. And by the way, it was even necessary that I raise on a third day. Jesus was not alone in the early church in trying to present this message. Look at Paul in Acts 17. In Acts chapter 17, verse 2, Paul, as his custom was, went into them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, verse 3, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is Christ. Notice that Paul, had, Paul believed it was necessary to not just walk in and go, hey, Jesus loves you. He had to present why Christ had to suffer and die. And so early on, the message that Jesus had to suffer and Jesus had to die was not as easy as it is for us. 2,000 years later, we've had a lot of preaching on why Jesus had to suffer and die. But in Jesus' day, it wasn't as easy a message as to why he had to suffer and why he had to die. So I want to ask a couple of questions based on Jesus' text. First of all, why must, because remember, he said it was necessary. These two things are necessary. It's necessary I die. It's necessary I raise on the third day. Why is it necessary that he die? And why is it necessary that he raise on a third day? And what would that have meant to his audience? And if we can dig down into the core of that, I think we can have something to be excited about in our own journey in the Lord. So let's start here with Israel. Israel saw salvation from sin not in individual terms, but in national terms. So whenever you would have said in Jesus' day to Israel that you have come to save them from their sins or save us from our sins, in Christianity, we think individually. Jesus came to individually save that woman and that man and that woman and that woman from their sins. But Israel already had lamb sacrifice for individual sins. If you went out and sinned against your neighbor, you, had, you already had it written down what you should do. You didn't fall down on your knees and ask God to forgive you. You didn't accept the blood of Jesus. The first one wasn't even a thought you could fall down on your knees and ask God to forgive you because you thought there was a necessity of blood. Jesus doesn't even exist for thousands of years. And so what are you going to do? You already had a law which said you could take a lamb or a bullock or a pigeon or a turtle dove and you could shed its blood and you could offer it up as a sacrifice to God in the temple. It had to be in a certain place. It had to be in the temple because it had to be a holy place. It had to be revered. It had to be set by God. But if you did that, whatever you brought to him, you could be forgiven of except for capital crimes. So if you took another person's life, then your life could be taken. If you took another person's covenant partner, then your life could be taken. But outside of that, you had, a, you had a remedy. You had medicine for whatever individual sins that you had. So you don't need a savior to come and save you from yourself. At least that's never in their mind that we need a savior to come and save us from ourselves. I don't mean we don't need a Savior to save us from ourselves. I mean they're not thinking they need a Savior to save them from themselves. Let's make sure we're, we're on the same page. There's no concept of I have an individual sin, so I need an individual Savior. And Israel saw themselves as God's chosen people, God's nation upon the earth, and therefore 
Whatever salvation is, they felt that they were the exclusive recipients of it. So however you could define salvation, that's ours. It doesn't belong to the Philistines. It doesn't belong to the Syrians. When the Greeks come along, it doesn't belong to the Greeks. When the Romans come along, it doesn't belong to the Romans. Whatever salvation is, it's ours. And in some respects, they thought that salvation was one thing or that salvation was another thing, but it belongs to us and us exclusively. That's the feeling. That's, the, that's what they believe that they have. It's national. Look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. I just want to give you an idea about this. This is one we always relegate to Christmas, but it's one that is so relevant to understanding Israel's thought process about sin. Matthew 1, 21, the angel says, She will bring forth a son... And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, when we read this at Christmas, we have already got a ready-made interpretation of this. Because what we see is little baby Jesus is born, and someday little baby Jesus grows up to be man Jesus. And then man Jesus goes to the cross and dies for my sins, raises from the dead so that I could have life also. But what would they have thought this verse meant whenever they said... His name is Jesus. By the way, Jesus is the word Joshua. So they already have a Joshua in their past. And what did Joshua do? Joshua took them into the promised land and conquered their enemies. He gave them the land they were supposed to have. In other words, Joshua was their first savior. Notice, Joshua didn't save anybody from their individual sins. Joshua saved them from the, from the land, from the enemy, from outside invaders from occupiers in the territory. And so when there's a new Joshua, Joshua 2.0, when Jesus comes on the scene and you're an Israelite, what do you think Jesus is here to do? Here's a big hint. There's a Roman Empire with its iron fist crushing you down and occupying your land. They run the show. They take your money. They take your possessions. They tell you where you're going to live. They tell you who the king is. In fact, they've even told you who the son of God is. Caesar Augustus declares himself to be the son of God and the bringer of the gospel. Greek word gospel meaning a king is here. Caesar's one of the first people to ever coin that word in Greek literature. And it wasn't about Jesus, it was about him. And so if you're a Jew living in occupied Roman territory and you're waiting on Joshua 2.0, when he gets here to save you from your sins, what's he going to do? Has nothing to do with saving you for eternity has nothing to do with washing your heart clean with blood. You already got lambs. Eternity's off somewhere else. They can't even decide on what that looks like. There's no real good theology, by the way, in the Old Testament about eternity. Heavens and hells and where you go when you die, they don't have it. And if you try to bank it on Old Testament theology, you'll end up sort of where Solomon did, which was when you're dead, you're dead. And he was the smartest man they had. And so, <laughs> so they're not thinking in eternal terms. They're thinking in natural terms. And in natural terms, we've got to have a Savior named Jesus going to deliver his people from their sins. But when they thought about sins, here's what they thought about. Sin is what we've done as a people. And the reason why Rome is even here is because we've sinned. Had we not sinned, Alexander the Great wouldn't have conquered the world. Had we not continued to sin... Caesar would not have conquered the world. And they had good history for this. When you read the Old Testament, Israel fails, God brings in an invader, and Israel goes to prison. Then God rises up, delivers them from oppression. They cross into a land. They're free. Then they fail. God brings an oppressor. Cycle. Where do we first see it? Israel coming out of Egyptian slavery. 
You guys are in slavery because you didn't believe and you didn't trust, and they go into the promised land and they get invaded eventually by the Babylonians, by the Medes and the Persians, by the Greeks, by the Romans, and every time it's believed to be in direct response because we nationally sinned. And the only reason Rome is over us right now is because we've nationally sinned and we can't wait for Joshua 2.0 to come. And when he gets here, he is going to deliver his people from their sins. What sin? We're thinking individual. They weren't thinking individual. They were thinking national and corporate. This is why they were disappointed with Jesus. Because Jesus didn't pick up a sword, Jesus didn't build an army, Jesus didn't lay out military plans, Jesus didn't badmouth Caesar. Jesus just loved his neighbor and fed people who were hungry and sacrificed himself daily and turned his other cheek to his enemies and said, pray for your persecutors and bless those that hate you. And none of this makes for a good general. None of this makes for a good army. How are you going to deliver your people from your sins if this is your attitude toward Rome and Caesar? And so it's easy for me to look at Caiaphas and all the Pharisees and go, you idiots, why don't you accept Jesus? You look at him, he's the perfect man. But I'm looking at it through my lens, not their lens. And their lens is waiting on someone to swing a sword and go, Caesar ain't seen nothing like me. Wait till he gets a load of me, because when he gets a load of me, he's in trouble. And how many of you know there's still a big chunk of the church today waiting on that Jesus to show up? That Jesus to show up with a sword in his hand and go, I'm going to show them all. And who, who are they all? It's whoever we disagree with. So if you're on one side of the political aisle, you're going, wait till Jesus gets here to show those monkeys what's up. And if you're on the other side of the political aisle, you go, wait till Jesus gets here to show all those idiots what's up. And, and if you're in one nation, then it's the other nation. And if you're one religious group, then it's the other religious group. And we're no different than they were. We just keep waiting on Jesus to show up with a sword in his hand. And we really struggle with the Jesus of Revelation that does show up with a sword, but it's not in his hand, it's in his mouth. Because the power of God is from the spoken words of Jesus, not from the mighty right hand. And that same Jesus is who you and I follow and who you and I serve. But in that day and in that era, they're still looking for the Jesus with the sword in his right hand, and they're disappointed in what they have. How many of you realize that when Paul says in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believeth, to the Jew first, also to the Greek. Did you know the word ashamed has its root in the Greek as the word disappointed? I am not disappointed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I, I, when I found that out, I went, why would anybody be disappointed in the gospel? Because if you accepted Jesus thinking you were signing up in the Lord's army to beat Caesar... You're disappointed in the gospel about two weeks in. And Paul said, I'm not disappointed because it's not the power of God to topple nations. It's the power of God to save souls. Now, that's a message that Israel had never heard. You want to know why the Apostle Paul's message is so polarizing? Because the Apostle Paul takes that which is believed to be corporate and starts to individualize it. Because Paul had grabbed hold of a philosophy that the Old Testament had tried to tell us. Remember this from the Old Testament? In that day, the soul that sinneth, God says, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. No longer shall a man die for his father's sin or his grandfather's sin. What was God saying? There's coming a day in a new covenant when I'm going to deal with people individually, not nationally, not corporately. What I want to do is be your God, not just everyone's God. See, it's easy to be the blanket God. See, God's God's God of all. But what about for you? It's also a cop-out to say God loves everybody because you don't need any self-identity with God loves everybody. That's a blanket. That's an umbrella love. What about God loves you? You see, that takes something where you have to face up to the love of God and make it bigger than just corporate. 
And so it's not just about what happens in the corporate realm, but Christianity starts to become about what happens in the individual realm. It's not only. We, we, we always run things too far one way or the other. Sometimes we've ran the individual part so much that it's all about me and my personal liberty, my personal space, my personal freedom, and everybody else can forget it because I'm not responsible for anyone. And that's not the message of the New Testament as well because it never forgets about who's on your left and who's on your right. But to take that salvation and make it personal is to bring a liberty. So they didn't view their Savior as personal because they already had lambs for their sins. Now, I want to shift gears for a second. You got all of that foundation. I want to show you a Jesus story that starts to put this into practice. And I did, I did about three years in the book of John with our group in Georgia. We did a little bit every week just walking through the book of John. It was easily the most transformative study I've ever done in my life because it was one of those things where Three years after anything, you're not who you were three years before you started. I don't care if you stood there and ran your fingers over your lips. You've at least got a bigger left arm than you did when you started. I mean, something changes in you from point A to point B in three years. So there was a lot that had changed anyway, but there was a lot that changed spiritually because that, that journey into that gospel to watch Jesus work, to dig down every week and just take our time, was so transformative on me to slow down and watch Jesus work, and stop trying to figure him out, because it's always easy to figure, think, we think we know why he's doing what he's doing, and, and so just to slow down and watch him do his thing, because when he does his thing in the Gospels, and especially in John, because John's the last of the four, and he's giving you stuff no one had given you before, because John's looking back on the corpus of the Gospels and going, I got a story no one told you yet, watch this. And then he lays it out there. And you watch Jesus in technicolor doing these amazing things. And the beautiful thing about John, I'm off on this, but it's in there. The beautiful thing about John is that when you listen to John, you watch John's gospel, he has Paul in his ear because John writes it on the other side of the Pauline Revolution. And so Paul's already preached the message of grace to the church when John sets down to write his gospel. So the Jesus that talks in John drips with Pauline theology. Now, we can sit back and go, well, is that fair? Did Jesus really say what Paul would have him say? And if we do that, we're missing the point. The point is, is that the church had been built on a foundation of the words of Christ, and the only ones carrying that message were the people like Paul and John. And when John sets down to take the message that he's had post-Pentecost and insert it into the ministry of Jesus, how he sees it is a Jesus that does things differently than he does in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so every now and then you get a glimpse of Jesus that'll blow your mind because he's doing stuff you just, you can't figure out without a full depth of theology. Watch this one from John chapter 12, verse 20. There were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. And they came to Philip. Now I want you to remember, are they Greeks or are they Jews? They're Greeks, which means they're not Jews. Okay, that's a little tip. So we got a group of non-Jewish people coming to meet Jesus. They come to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee. They probably picked Philip because he has the most Greek-sounding name. So you go find the guy. This is our nature. We go find the guy that looks like us, sounds like us, dresses like us. He's probably safe. They go to Philip, and they ask him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Straightforward request. This is easy, right? This is the easiest evangelism you've ever done in your life. This doesn't happen. How many of you have ever knocked on door, cold-called people, try to get them saved? Man, I did. I used to do that every, every Saturday. That was part of our church discipleship programs. Go out and cold call people, try to get them saved. We didn't get anybody saved because that's it. It took a long time to learn that wasn't a good method as it was cold calling people. Man, I'd have fell out if, if, it, if it walked up that easy. Someone walked up to me on my way to a house and went, Sir, I would see Jesus. I was just, 
I don't know, what, what do I do? So here's what Philip does. Philip comes, he don't even go to Jesus. He's shocked. He goes to Andrew, and Andrew and Philip go together to tell Jesus, you're not going to believe this. These guys just want to meet you. I just got these dudes. They're not Jewish. They don't know the Torah. They don't know any of that stuff. I don't know if you want to see them or not. They don't know you, but we're going to introduce you. But Jesus answered them and said, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And I think, what just happened? He doesn't even mention the Greeks. And did you know he never does? In this story, it's as if Jesus didn't even hear them introduce this group of Greeks. Now, that bugs me as a Bible student. I go, come on, Jesus. Wouldn't you think you got an opportunity here? These guys want to meet you. You're the son of God. You can, you can do something spectacular with this group of strangers. We don't miss this kind of opportunity. And instead, you tell a farming story. It's time for the Son of Man to be glorified. Unless, unless a seed of corn falls into the ground and die, it cannot bring forth much wheat. You're going to love your life, you can, then you're going to lose it. But if you're going to hate your life in this world, the same is going to find it. And you go, what in the world is Jesus talking about? And I want you to remember, it's a group of Gentiles that comes to Jesus. And Jesus in his first advent, Jesus in his flesh, is on the earth to minister to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Everything Jesus does is to show Israel the love of the Father and to bring them back home. He's even reluctant in many moments to even stop and heal Gentiles because it's a distraction from the mission. But it's not only that, and this is the point of this lesson tonight. The story that Jesus tells is, if you want a harvest, you're going to have to drop a seed into the ground. And then this key word that we never say when we talk gardening I don't know if we don't say it because we don't understand it or we don't say it because it's so obvious you don't need to say it. But Jesus says this, when it gets into the ground, it has to die first. When it dies, it busts open and whatever's on the inside comes out so that it can bring forth much fruit. So one little apple seed falls into the ground and dies effectively. It would be no good for you to eat that seed now. But because it has died, it can bring forth the kind of tree that will give you bushels of apples. So one seed is good for one taste. But one seed that goes into the ground and dies is good for a taste of eternity. Because that apple brings forth 20 bushels, and those 20 bushels bring forth 400 bushels, and those 400 bushels bring forth thousands of bushels, all because of one seed. Why does he say this when there's a bunch of Gentiles there? Because Christ knew that the only way he was going to be any good to anyone outside of Israel is if he went into the ground and died so that he could become everything that that group of Gentiles could ever need. Because in his natural body, as Jesus on the earth, he was not what every Gentile needs. What Jesus does in his, natural, in his natural life is Jesus shows us how to act in the world. And I'm going to tell you, if you just went out tomorrow and acted like Jesus did in the world, the world would be a better place. You'd get run over. And that would be the point. Not you get run over and the point is don't get run over again. You'd get run over because the point Jesus is making is 
The power structures of this world know nothing about the love of my Father. The only way we're going to overcome the power structures of this world is not to grab power, but to love and to forgive. And it's the least attractive message you can preach in the American church. Because everybody wants power. I'm going to slow down right here and just say a couple things. Everybody wants power. Republicans want power. Democrats want power. Independents want power. Libertarians say they don't want power. They want power. Everybody wants power. <laughs> Everybody's somewhere in the middle going, I'd like a little power. My side needs herd. That's it. My side needs herd. That's power. Somebody's got to be an authority. Well, it's better that good people be in power, preacher, than that bad people be in power. Oh, careful. Because who gets to determine who the good people are that's in power? And that's always the bad news as to who gets determined. You know what I'm looking for? I'm looking for a faith that people rise up and say, maybe it isn't about getting power. Maybe it's about eschewing power. Maybe it's not about grabbing hold of the systems of this world, but letting go of them. Now, if you live the Jesus style, that's where you're probably going to end up. And it's not going to be a popular position. But, it's not, but it has nothing to do with the salvation of your soul. It has to do with how to love your neighbor, and that's what Jesus was here to show Israel how to do. That was the thing, by the way, that Israel had failed to do as a nation. What was Israel's great sin? They failed to take care of the widows and the strangers and the fatherless. They failed to love the neighbor as themselves, and the punishment was there. It's the same punishment that falls on any that, that doesn't live to that. But when it comes time to save the soul, when it time, here's the key. When it comes time to internal transformation to where you can literally be someone else, that you can change, that if you think a certain way, he can transform that, that if you are a certain thing, he can change that. That's not possible through the systems of the world. In fact, everybody goes, people can't change. They are what they are. But because Jesus as a seed goes into the ground and dies, he can come out on the other side as a resurrected man so that when you believe in him, it's not you believing in him for national power or for national collective forgiveness. It's you believing in him so that you too can participate in who he is. Paul says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. What's he mean? I want to see what happens if I produce on the earth that resurrected reality. So that leads to, why has he got to raise on the third day? Look again at Luke chapter 24. I want to put those two things up one more time from verse 46. He said to them, Thus it is written, thus it was necessary, for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. There is a key in verse 47 that tells you why the third day is necessary, because the gospel needed to go forth to all nations, not Israel alone. All nations. Man, this was a really tough one for the early church. Um, identifying who the other people are and then learning to love them is the biggest challenge of being human, I think. Um, we struggle with identifying the others because the others are a threat. People that aren't like us are a threat to us. We have to change that mentality. The early church had to change that mentality. How many of you realize that the early church was told to do this? I'm, I'm, I'm just a slightly off the trail here, but I got I to gotta chase this down. I, just, I need to get this. I need to work this out with you for a second, okay? I do a lot of this for me as much as for you. The early church was told, you're going to be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost part of the earth. That's a geographical progression, like a ripples on a pond. Pop, pop, pop. You're going to be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem 
and then in the greater reaches of Judea, and then in Samaria, and then the uttermost parts of the earth. And so they ignored that for seven chapters of the book of Acts. They get the Holy Ghost in chapter 2. They get refilled with the Holy Ghost in chapter 4. They experiment with collective socialism in chapter 5. By chapter 7, they got one guy who's bold enough to go out into the street and preach the gospel, and that's Stephen. And Saul of Tarsus comes and stones him to death. And the church in Acts chapter 8 scatters out of Jerusalem to go preach the gospel elsewhere because it's no longer palatable to stay in Jerusalem. God's the one that turned the light on so the cockroaches would run in Acts chapter 8. And so the light gets flicked on. Everybody runs out of Jerusalem because what were they supposed to do? Take the gospel to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. So they run. They go all the way at least to Samaria. They're not to the uttermost part of the earth yet. I mean, let's don't get crazy. So in Acts chapter 10, Peter's eating on his roof, ready to eat lunch. And here comes a basket of animals down. And God goes, take, kill, and eat. And it's full of unclean animals. And we may get to this later in the weekend, talk a little bit more about Peter and, and Peter, of course, goes to the house of Cornelius and preaches the gospel. As you watch, I think it's Acts chapter 11, the Bible tells you that the Jews had scattered out of Jerusalem. The apostles had scattered out of Jerusalem. But up till this point, we're in Acts 11. By the way, we're almost halfway out of the book of Acts. We're in Acts 11. It goes, up until this point, they had only shared the gospel with their fellow Jews. So, not... They first won't even leave Jerusalem. Then when they leave Jerusalem and get to Judea and forcibly get to Samaria, they go around only looking for fellow Jews to give the gospel to. They're in Samaria. They're, they're not yet even to the uttermost parts of the earth. And so as far as they were concerned, identifying the others was not a part of their mission. You don't have to worry about the others. You only have to go to the people you want to go to. You only have to go to the people you like. You only have to go to the people that dress like you. You only have to go to the people that think like you, that vote like you, that spend like you, that act like you, and just hang around them and then build a church around that. And it didn't take long for the church in Acts 15. By the way, now we're 60% through the book of Acts. And the church in Acts 15 decide to vote. They vote on whether or not Gentiles should have to keep the law the same way that Gentiles should. We're 60% out of the book of Acts, and we haven't figured out that grace works. And I go around to churches, and people go, you know what I want? Bless God, I want our church to be like the book of Acts. And I've started asking them, man, which part? Because I got a feeling you're already hanging out in the first seven chapters. They don't like that answer most of the time. <laughs> because the reality is, is get out and begin to find that the others are worthy of that gospel. But why are they worthy? That's the question. Because of a third-day necessity. And here's why there is a third-day necessity to all nations. Look at Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 11, God said... Let the earth bring forth grass, the herb that yields seed, and the fruit tree that yields fruit according to its kind, whose seed is in itself and on the earth, and it was so. And the earth brought forth grass, the herb that yields seed according to its kind, and the tree that yields fruit, whose seed is in itself according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. So the evening and the morning were the third day. Now, I told you at the beginning of this lesson that I think the worst thing we can do is tell people what to believe. I think the best thing we can do is to teach people how to learn. All right? 
you don't have to agree with what I'm about to throw out there, but you should at least take a taste of the entree. And that is this, that when God gives the creative account in the book of Genesis in the first chapter, perhaps God is not trying to give you a blow-by-blow account of how he created everything. Perhaps he's trying to get you to understand the creative process of the heart of God, that when he faces chaos and darkness, he knows how to beat it by speaking light. That whenever he sees something in your life that divides you, that hurts you, that harms you, that puts up a fence against you, he knows how to separate your firmament from your firmament and put heaven into the middle of your hell. Maybe on the third day, he's giving you an image. Inside is exactly what you need for your tomorrows. And what might have to happen is in order to get the you that should exist tomorrow to come out into the open, the you that exists today has seed within itself, so maybe it needs to go down into the ground and die so that what comes out tomorrow will be different. In other words, maybe there's a piece of you that you need to address today that needs to be put into who Christ is so that the you that could exist on the earth tomorrow can finally stand up and do something on the earth. And maybe God did that on day three and then let it hang out there all the way up until the ministry of Jesus. When Jesus in Luke 24 goes, I want to show you everything in the word concerning myself. It was necessary that I die and raise on what day? The third day, not the second day, not the fourth day, not the fifth day. Why the third day? Because if you see me resurrect on a third day, you'll remember that the creative power of a brand new world is inside of me and can therefore be inside of you. And what we need is the understanding that everything that's going to happen on the earth is not going to happen because God swoops down and delivers us, but it's going to happen because God deposited inside of you exactly what the earth of tomorrow needs. And if we don't let go of something we are today, we can't take possession of what we can be tomorrow. Here's why in John 12, Jesus ignores a group of Gentiles. Not because he's cold-hearted. Not because he doesn't hear them. Not because they're not worth it. But because what the Gentiles need can only happen on the other side of a resurrection. Because they need a transformation of their heart. They need their tomorrows changed. They need their possibilities transformed. And they can't do that with Jesus standing by a seaside and feeding 5,000. But they can do that with a resurrected man who has died on their behalf, who has raised again to show us a new man on the earth. And the reason he ignores them is so that he can be a, not one seed of an apple, but a whole bushel of apples to the rest of the world. You know why the third day is necessary? Because the third day is what separates us from a people just full of principles and morality. You see, Christianity is principles and morality. It must be, because our Jesus was both principled and moral. How can we be less than principled and moral and say that we follow him? So yes, it's part of what we are, but it's not our calling card. Hello, I'd like for you to follow Jesus, where if you'll follow Jesus, you'll live better. Your morals will improve. You'll have better principles. Listen, there's religions of the world that are chock full of principles, man. Have you studied some of the leaders of the religions of the world? They, they teach principle, 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 moral, 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 moral. Nothing wrong with principles and morals. Where's transformation? Where's the possibility that I don't have to be who I am today, but I can be who he says I can be? Where's that? It's in the third day. It's in the fact that Jesus rolled the stone away and came out on that third day 
The third day was to show creation. Look at this one from James chapter 1, verse 18. You want to know where you belong in the story? Right here. James 1, 18, his own, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Look at that. First fruits. How do you get fruit? According to the illustration Jesus gave in John 12, you're never going to get the wheat unless the seed of corn goes down into the ground and dies. So you're never going to get the bushel of apples unless the first apple goes into the ground and dies. And look what James calls all of us first fruits. In other words, we are the product of a third day revelation by Jesus. The fact that Christ is a new creation means I too can participate in new creation reality. And I love the fact that that phrase of his own will, he brought us forth. He brought us forth is the Greek word apakio. He birthed us out of his womb. <laughs> Remember what Genesis 1 said? That every tree has within it the seed that has the life of the tree within itself. Remember that? Has the life of the tree within itself. When Jesus goes into the tomb, he has the life of who you could be in himself. And James said, he brought, he birthed you out of the womb as a kind of, I love that phrase, as a kind of first fruits. Why does he say as a kind of? Because he's dipping back into the Genesis, I think he's dipping back into the Genesis 1 illustration. He's going, you know what you're kind of like? You're kind of like the tree on day three. It had a seed that bore something of itself. Why do we need this? Because if we don't have this, we have a principled Jesus on the earth and we'll do the best we can to live up to his standards and we'll fail. Because as much as we like to stand in here and rah-rah that we love our neighbor and turn our other cheek, we don't. that's hard, man. Turn our other cheek only after we have blistered theirs, usually. That's kind of, he hit me first, I hit him back. I mean, don't hit me if you don't want to get hit back, right? And I get it. I mean, why not? That's... The blood of Abel crying out from the earth. I need avenged, man. It takes a real spiritual death to get to the other side of that and go, that's not me. So we would fail. If we just left it up to live to the standards of Jesus, we would fail. We're not wrong in grace when we say, when you read the, the Gospels, Jesus is speaking to a people under the law. We, we've overemphasized that, I think. We've done that so much, we've started ignoring Jesus, which is foolish. Never silence the Lamb. Let him talk, because he has something to say to all of us, even if you're under grace, not under the law. But we aren't wrong in that he wasn't addressing you under a new covenant, because under a new covenant, you have a new creation reality. You're a, first, you're a, you're a kind of first fruits, and being a kind of first fruits means you have what he had. And the beauty is, is that we're not out here trying to emulate his principles and his morality. We are letting him live his life through us. And we're realizing that what we have, this is the key, this lands the plane, that what we have is a kind of first fruits off what he had. Whatever DNA is in me spiritually came from the first seed. Who was the first seed of the new man? Jesus. Why a third day? Because he wanted you to realize that that tree came off of that seed. And if that seed was Jesus, then you're a byproduct. You're a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And that is what you need when you go face the world. Not the list of Jesus principles. Okay, Jesus said to say this. Because while the world would be a better place if we all walked around with a Cliff Notes version and went, I'm going to try to be the best Jesus I can be, wouldn't it be a better place than any other alternative? Sure it would. But we're not going to live up to it. But instead, I don't need the Cliff Notes. I need to realize 
As he is, so am I in this world. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in this world. And I am his righteousness. Why? Because I'm kind of his first fruits. Like, he, I kind of look like him. I'm talking in the spirit realm. I'm talking about how my father sees me. I kind of remind my dad of Jesus. Like, he sees me and he thinks, Jamie kind of moved like Jesus did right there. And I know that's tough for us to get our mind around. That's why it is necessary to explain why he suffered and raised on a third day. So that people go, hmm, maybe I'm a new creation in the earth. Where'd this tree come from? Let me show you its grandfather tree. Whatever's in that is in that. This is why we have to show people Jesus. Okay, church, I want to show you Jesus. Why? Because if you can take a look at the, the grandfather tree, you might start to understand what you can be. And you might start to understand what you are. And you might start to live out of that. Take that necessity. Put that in your spirit. Wrestle it over a little bit. See where you land on that, all right? Father, I thank you tonight for the chance to talk up Jesus. <laughs> I love to talk up Jesus. It's so easy. Thank you, Father, for this wonderful group of people tonight who've been so gracious to open their hearts and their ears. I pray that we have not wasted their time. I pray that they have seen Jesus, that it has excited their soul, that even if they have tasted some of the things we laid out there for them to taste or to wrestle with, and they went, I don't know about that. If nothing else, maybe they leave and say, at least I saw Jesus, and in seeing Jesus, my heart is set at peace. That's what I ask tonight, Father. Hearts at peace. And for those who will watch and hear this somewhere down the road, may they see that the reason Jesus raised on a third day holds a whole universe of brand new possibilities for them. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.